and welcome to another episode of Dinner with Racers Season 3. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Heckman, and you are not listening to one of our fancy introductions because this is just a real quick segue as a part two to our previous episode with Craig Hampson, who's a very successful IndyCar engineer. As we said at the beginning of Craig's main episode, uh, we have quite a contingent of young engineering fans of our podcast. It's something that uh, both Ryan and I have always noticed when we're at the track, is when we do get approached, a lot of times it is from sort of young, aspiring engineers. And we've never really had that standalone episode that was kind of tailored to that group of students currently sitting in a garage at Formula SAE or for that 16-year-old who's kind of looking at what would life be like or that 21-year-old who's a year or two away from graduating and, and doesn't really know if a life in motorsports is really a, a fit for them. Uh, so that's kind of what this is about. We didn't go into this recording with that intention, so this isn't necessarily a custom-tailored deal, but Craig is a great storyteller and uh, really good at sort of providing a narrative uh, for his own youth and when he was himself in Formula SAE and what life was like for him as a junior engineer in the 90s and now that he's in a very senior role what he looks for out of 22 year olds that are just coming out of school etc etc so uh, we figured we'd just put together a little short episode that was really just kind of taking Craig's stories of what what life was like for him when he was young and kind of making it its own thing for for those who just kind of wanted a glimpse into the, the engineering life and getting sort of a, an understanding of what that's all about so uh, that's what this is just a special little thing uh, hope you enjoy and obviously you can still enjoy it without being 20 years old. I did, and I'm 38 and completely terrible when it comes to all things uh, mathematical and engineering. So, uh, in any case, Craig Hampson, part two. Enjoy. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. And you were you were at Newman Haas as sort of a I don't know the proper term like but a junior level engineer when Mario was doing his last season or two. That's right. So okay. um, straight and was out this of like your first job out of college. Literally straight for, straight out of college. So wow. the way it worked is in college I went to the University of Maryland. Okay. Did something called Formula SA. Are you which, from Maryland? I am not. I'm from New Jersey originally. Okay. okay. Um, but you know went to college in Maryland. Okay. Did Formula SAE. Okay. Uh, for several years, uh, you know, competed, built race cars, and right. competed against other colleges. It's a, a great experience. Actually, for, a lot of our listeners are SAE. Kids. Yeah, for yeah. For, for, so. for junior engineers, a great way to get introduced to the practicalities of engineering yeah. and actually having to build what you've designed. Um, so that was a good experience. I said, you know, this is a lot more fun than a regular job. Who wants a regular job? I want to yeah. do this. Understood. So I thought I wanted yeah. to go professional motor racing. I thought I had a job all lined up at the TWR Jaguar team, which wow. was oh, based wow. in cool. Tom Verizo, Indiana. Yeah. Um, if I'm honest, at the time, I was really more interested in Formula One and sports cars than I was in Indy cars. That's normal. So I thought I was going to go to work for Jaguar, and then Jaguar pulled the funding on the team. Yep. Yep. And it's like, oh my god, I don't have a job. What <laughs> am I going to do? Yep. So I wandered off to grad school for a year, not really that interested in grad and school but was it was your degree me or what? i'm a mechanical engineer okay, right. yeah so but uh you know while in grad school i'd still go to the odd race here Perfect. and there and we went to the mid-ohio indycar race right and uh, one night in the bar in the holiday inn uh i ran into todd boland okay. who i knew from the formula sae experience oh, right. he had gone to virginia cool. tech cool. i had gone to maryland you know they're regionally close right um <laughs> and i just said you know i'm still trying to get in and he gave me names of ah, a couple people. He right. said Newman Haas was looking, yep. and here's the name of who you send the resume to. Right. And he said Ganassi was looking, and here is the name of who right. you send the resume to. So I could send resumes off all day. Right. Um, in fact, I have 
somewhere still a beautiful rejection letter from the Penske team. Oh, awesome. The letter has like gold embossed letterhead. Yeah, wow. um, and it said something to the effect of, we do not have a position which meets your qualifications, which I <laughs> thought was just so <laughs> eloquent. Beautiful. Um, but yeah, Penske turned me down. But the fact that with Todd's contacts, I was able to actually put a, like a name on the cover letter and I could put, you know, Todd said I should contact you. Right. I think my resume at least got noticed That's amongst so, yeah. the hundreds That's and hundreds of them that came yeah. in. So as it ended up, I, I got interviewed at both Ganassi and at Newman Haas and was offered jobs with both. Great. No kidding. It's great. Yeah. Um, so I have to pick. Now, Newman Haas had just won the championship with Nigel Mansell. You know, they had dominated with Michael Andretti before that. Right. And at this stage, uh, Ganassi had never right. won a race. Right. So it's a no-brainer, right? I'm right. like, hey, I'm going to go work yeah. at Newman Haas, and, and right. we're going to conquer the world. I have a job forever. <laughs> um, so the next year uh, is Nigel Mansell and Mario Andretti again, uh, and they went from the sort of good Nigel year to the bad Nigel year. Yeah. Yep. Um, Newman Haas didn't win a single race that year. Uh, and Penske just dominated. Nigel was demoralized. Uh, unfortunately, Senna was killed partway through the year, and Nigel declared that he needed to, uh, I believe the phrase was, go back and save Formula One. <laughs> um, and there was huge tension between the Andrettis and Nigel. Yeah, that really? was, always um, it was It was really awkward. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a difficult introduction to the whole thing yeah. um, because uh, the team that had been successful wasn't having success. Right, and with two drivers that are uh, not getting along. With two drivers that were not getting along. Yeah. Um, and what was your role? Uh, so I was, you know, an entry-level engineer. So yeah. I did a couple things. Number one, I did a lot of design stuff. Okay. Um, you know, back because back, back in that day, you could do a lot of design yeah. stuff. I would say we generated drawings probably in the high hundreds close to a thousand different right. parts a so year. So you'd get a car from point. Lola, but then you could sort of adapt it into what you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, everything was open for, like, everything was open for modification That's back awesome. then. Right. You know, and, and guys now, when we get cars, <coughs> they will complain. Like, stuff will show up. It's like, oh, that's really awkward to work on, or that's going right. to break, and how do we do that? And the rules makers say, well, you can't change yeah, it. The LARA has to change it. Right, right. You know, or you have to ask for permission. Back then, the car was every bit a piece of junk as anything we get now. In fact, right. it was probably worse. But the fact is, we just rolled up our sleeves and, and started changing cool. stuff. Right, right. That's cool. So the money existed to do that, right. and it was the freedom within the rules to yep. do that. Yep. You can't do that now. Right. So I did a lot of design work, okay. but then I also traveled, and I would be what would be called the data engineer, okay. which is I ran the data system on the car, right. offloaded the data, and made right. sure all the sensors were which working. Which I'm sure is very different from now. It was probably some old DOS something that you're pulling down. Yes. Yeah. So I tell the young guys that we work with now, <laughs> I'm like, when I started this, in order to give Nigel's data to Mario's engineer, I copied it onto a floppy disk, <laughs> and I handed the floppy disk to the other guy. The and old, he like, handed, inch, yeah. Uh, yeah. He handed me his floppy disk, and we had these big racks of floppy disks. <laughs> right. Which... When right. we were cleaning out the shop, we threw away, and now in hindsight, I'm like, oh my God, we right. threw away Mario Andretti's floppy disk. Yeah. Like <laughs> it could have been in like a museum somewhere, <laughs> sure. but we just tossed them away. They could sure. store 600 um, kilobytes. Yeah, and then yeah. they <laughs> then they invented something called Laplink, where you could actually uh, go through like the printer port and yeah. plug two computers in together. Sure. And boy, that was a step forward. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Um, you know, we got email. Right. We had AOL email. Yep. So there was one little phone line that we passed around the engineering <laughs> office that you plugged into the side right. of your computer and yeah, dialed right. up. Beep up. We yeah. used a fax machine to Cosworth over in England to communicate things back and forth. Uh, pretty different deal. Yeah. yeah pretty yeah, different sure. deal yeah. back then. Um, you know, I even remember, like, you know, you'd have a laptop that you used to communicate to right. your car, but 
you didn't really have anything else to do with it. So right. when the race weekend was over, you'd leave it on the truck. Right. And yeah. just whatever yeah, the truck got back to the it? office, you'd take your laptop and you're off. The, yeah. And you're the 22-year-old kid, so it's your job, I assume, because it's still fairly new, all this stuff. So you have to figure it out, presumably. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Todd Boland, he was a computer science major. He okay. was, he was a, g- a good educator right. about the whole thing. He was two years more experienced than I was. Um, but, yeah, you know, your head yeah. is spinning. There's a, a lot going on. You know, and people will ask me, you know, kind of, well, what was Mario like as a driver? Or what was Nigel like as a driver? And I can note some very, you know, the, the odd point here or right. there. But I don't, didn't understand them at the same level that I yeah. would understand Sebastian Bourdais yeah, or James were, Hinchcliffe. You were the data right. kid. You know, yeah. I was the data kid. I was yeah. still learning, you yeah. know, and a lot of the terms... You know, I, I remember at one point being a chief mechanic making fun of me where he's like, well, we have to change the tilt on the car. And I was like, oh. what's tilt? <laughs> and, and, you know, he thinks this is hilarious. Right. Well, the reality is, is that tilt is when we go to an oval, we set the right-hand side of the yeah. car up higher than the yeah, left-hand yeah, side yes. of the car so that when we go around a corner, it rolls yeah. flat and right, we can right. be as low as possible. Right. Well, we didn't have tilt on a Formula SAE car. <laughs> it wasn't going around an oval. Right. It was in a parking lot. Right. You know, we were setting up the ride height with a ruler. You right. know, I mean, it was a, it was a different different approach yeah, so sure. there was a lot of learning that went on at that point but you know i can stay it's kind of neat in my career i did work with mario andretti i yep. worked extensively with michael andretti yep. and i worked some with marco andretti yeah that's pretty cool yeah, it is cool yeah. you know how long would it take to pull a session of data like when you very you know, it very really wasn't other. that long i would say the offload was a similar amount of time but oh, okay. that's because you just couldn't record that much yeah ah, right. Right. yeah, yeah. Like that like gigs yeah. of data you know, it, it, right. it thankfully predates me but my understanding is the very first data system you actually walked out with a printer and you plugged the printer into the side of the car. Oh, no so way. rather than <laughs> offloading onto a computer, the printer just printed like three sheets of paper yeah. of like speed and throttle and steering. You know, here you go. <laughs> and then you could stare at them. Right, right. So, three lines. Um, you know, now the <laughs> Formula lines. One guys, they don't even plug into offload. Yeah, as soon as the Bluetooth, thing, right? it's all Bluetooth, yeah. you know, Bluetooth yeah. or Wi-Fi or whatever, it yeah. hits pit lane and they've got the data before the thing even comes to a halt. Right. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. It's a... It's a uh, the technology's come a long way. I suppose we must ask ourselves, has the technology actually improved the fan experience? The product, yeah. Right. The sport, yeah. You know, are we more popular for it? Are we less popular for sure, it? Sure, sure. I, I don't really know the answer to that. Right. I know at this point, every time new technology comes, no one's willing to give it up. Right. You know, everybody wants to know what the temperature of their tires are yeah, or the yeah. telemetry that they get, you know. Um, I don't know how we would operate without that stuff. Yeah, you can't just go back. Um, right, right. But has it actually made the sport better? I, I don't know. So uh, kind of going to the, in that direction, what about motorsport attracted you at a young age? Like, were you a racing fan? Was your dad a racing fan? Or did you go to school and then you said, okay, I can do this and that's an industry? A like. uh, combination of stuff. So my dad uh, was a car guy. Yeah. Um, he didn't do it professionally in any sort of way, but um, he had drag raced on like a semi-amateur level sure. prior to when I was born uh, on the East Coast drag racing scene. He also did some announcing for oh, cool. the, the sanctioning bodies there. Sure. I can remember uh, 1930 Ford Model A that he did. Right. We had a Willys Jeepster. Ah, cool. Had a, a really nice 66 candy apple red Mustang Fastback that okay. I just lusted after right. when yeah, I was yeah. sort of 14, 15 years old. And I my father is, was not a dumb man, so he knew exactly what was going to happen when I got my driver's license. So he yep. arranged to sell it <laughs> just, just as I was getting my driver's license. Right. Right. But, you know, I had dreamed about the thing, so I d- he let me drive it once before it went away. Okay. And so I got in this thing, and it was terrible. <laughs> it, like, it had so much play in the steering, and it wandered all right. around. Right. And you hit the brakes, yeah, yeah, and it absolutely. wouldn't stop. Later, and, yeah. to stop. I was like, yeah. you know. 
maybe this isn't quite what I wanted. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, my experience with my father was you worked on your own car. Yep. You, yeah. you did mechanical things. We'd wander down to the body shop or the junkyard yep. or the machine shop. Yeah. The different people that, you know, uh, I, I worked at a service station that was owned by a, a friend of his. Um, so that was all really good. Yeah. But if I'm honest, I wasn't really a car guy at first. I was more interested in, like, rockets and airplanes. Sure. I thought I'd be yeah, an yeah, aerospace yeah, sure. engineer. Sure. Um, but once I got my driver's license and then also realized that, you know, the aerospace industry was kind of dying. We weren't going to the this moon anymore. The, this is the 80s? Yeah, yeah. You know, the space shuttle thing isn't quite working out how it was. Yeah, Basically, yeah. the government and the, the general populace was figuring out, you know, this is too expensive and yeah. we're not all that interested. Right. Um, so the cars got more interesting okay. to me. Um, you know, we would go to the race at Nazareth, the IndyCar okay. race yeah. there. Went to the race at the Meadowlands. Uh, would go up to Lime Rock. Cool. Um, so exposure there. And then, uh, you know, at University of Maryland, they give you the, the tour around the engineering school and they show you the different classrooms and the, the, the clubs that are going on. And yeah. they walked you through this one lab building and there's a Formula SAE car. Uh, right. And I went, aha, oh, okay. <laughs> that looks pretty good. Yeah. Um, so I did the solar car at Maryland, okay. got to race across Australia, nice. which cool. was an okay. interesting yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then did the Formula SAE. And then from there, like I said, uh, it became clear that that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So were you the kid at the Formula SAE meet that was, like, printing out 25 sheets of pre-event yeah. reports? No. Um, <laughs> I just want to talk to that girl. Yeah. Like, I don't care, Craig. Read the report. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, Craig. I, I, I think any Formula SAE team has a key group of four or five or six people yeah. who are really the ones driving it forward. Right. Yeah. And they're the ones whose grades are really suffering, but they're just, like, super <laughs> so devoted it. to it. Right. Um, you know, and there was some interesting guys in that group. Uh, there's a guy named Roy McCauley who I went to school with. So he, for a time, he was a NASCAR crew chief. Oh, cool. Uh, cool. Uh, he won Daytona uh, with Ryan Newman. Um, Heard of wow. So he still works at Penske. Yeah. And he's in charge of the build shop okay. for all the Penske NASCAR cars. Um, we had a couple guys there who work at Honda Performance Development or in, are involved in the IndyCar so engines. I work for. Yeah, so like Mark Sowers, you know yeah, Mark Sowers? Yeah, absolutely. So oh, I went yeah. to college with Mark Sowers. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and uh, another interesting one, a guy named James Cooper, who, who was quite a good driver. Um, he didn't go into professional motor racing, but uh, he works for NASA. And so oh, cool. he I, that did that. stuff yeah. on the Hubble Space Telescope, and he's now oh. one of the primary designers of the James Webb Space Telescope wow, that's wow. going on. That's going on yeah. um, also a guy named Greg Thomas, who you may or may not know through your Honda connections. He works for Acura Corporate. He oh, works okay. in Ohio, and he's one of the chief test drivers for the uh, – the road cars, yeah, and cool. he's okay. involved in picking out sort of what tires ought you to put on an NSX right. or you know an Acura TLX to sure. make it give the car the, the owner a good road driving experience. Right, so, right. Um, I think uh, Dr. David Holloway was his name. He did a great job of assembling people and kind of uh, giving them some knowledge and then turning them loose with enthusiasm. Sure. And uh, Maryland, uh, and honestly, it was a great place to learn uh, about how how to design and tune right. cars. I mean, that was a pretty powerhouse lineup you guys had working on. Did you dominate the we season? We did not. You oh, know, there interesting. Were, um, so reliability is like a big key, yeah. and that was definitely our uh, shortcoming. Okay. Sure. Um, you know, if, if I had a recommendation for the Formula SAEers, it would be get the car done early and then drive it for a few months and break everything that's going to sure. break. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't get it done early. You, yeah, know, yeah, you yeah. have all this ambition and you just plain don't get it done I early. I read reports then, for weeks on end. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, maybe I hadn't, like I said, I blame the report thing on Rocky. That's not my fault. Um, 
you know, but but the, the car wasn't reliable enough. Yeah. Um, but there were, at the time, Virginia Tech was very strong. At the time, Cornell was very strong. Uh, and then the University of Texas at Arlington was very strong. Uh, I think a lot of these places you'll find if there's a professor who's really into it yeah. um, and keen, you know, he guides the program along and, uh, you know, uh, creates enthusiastic sure. students then. Sure. Uh, and so I think it ebbs and flows depending upon what professors are employed where. Sure. Um, and, you know, in different schools uh, <coughs> become strong and then, you know, fall by the wayside again. Uh, you know, back then it was just an American thing and now it's worldwide. Oh. You know, the European yeah. schools come over, yeah. schools from uh, Asia come over. Uh, the German schools, as I understand, are really strong and they're strong in part because they get a lot of assistance from the German auto companies. Sure. Right, right, um, right. But uh, you know, I, I I can't say enough good things about the Society of Automotive Engineers program and right. what they did for me in college, in terms of giving me a head start because I, I wouldn't have ever gotten the job in motor racing right. if I hadn't done the Formula yeah. S. Well, and you went to interview with Andretti and Ganassi and got offers from both of them. That's pretty much like the upper echelon of motorsports. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the tough thing is, is you know, when I interview young engineers, um, I'm, I'm probably a tough interviewer. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I ask them pointed questions, which are not necessarily, part of it is, is I ask them vehicle dynamics kind of questions mm -hmm. to see sure. if they understand the car stuff. Do they understand how tires work or roll centers work on a car? Um, but I also ask them pointed engineering questions, you know, how to figure out how big a bolt needs to be or what kind of steel should well, you use. Right. I'd like to know that they actually did pay attention in class. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, because, like, if you did Formula SAE but you got a 2-1 GPA, to me that is a warning sign. You know, right. we really are looking for the super bright spark, you know, the one who led his Formula SAE team but was still able to get at least halfway decent grades. Yeah. Um, because the fact is we're a really small group. Uh, when you go and you hire somebody who doesn't, turn out to work out, it, 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 it's a bad thing, right? right? You end up spending maybe a year realizing that the, the person isn't the fit. right mm -hmm. right fit, yeah. and then you have to go through the whole process of interviewing again, Finding which might mean one. 20 or 30 interviews. Right. Right. Um, you know, when a young guy comes up to me and he's like, um, can I talk to you? That's code for I have another job offer and I'm leaving. Oh, and yeah. you just sort of roll your eyes and like, oh, God, here we go. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's always unfortunate when you lose a really good person but it's also unfortunate from the standpoint it means you have to figure out how to replace them. Right. And that, that's a time-consuming process right. as well. I understand it, though, because you want people within the industry who are ambitious, who want to grow and, and have more responsibilities. And the fact is, is a, a motor racing team or just motor racing in general, it's a, it's a pyramid. Right. Um, you know, there can only be one race engineer on a car and maybe one or two assistant engineers and then more junior engineers. And if you want to advance, you're waiting for an opening above you. Yeah. Right. And there isn't always an opening yeah. above you. Um, and if they get offered a job at a team that has more money or more resources or they can get a nice big yeah. raise um, or better responsibilities, you can't fault them right. for that, yeah. you know. Um, I was offered race engineering jobs for several years before I actually became a race engineer. Those job offers came from smaller teams, you know, who recognized that I was sort of stuck where I was and biding my time. Um, but I think I, in hindsight, I made the right decisions in, in saying, you know what, I'm not, it's not the right situation right. and I'm going to wait. Um, because if you're not with a good driver and a good team in a good situation, you're going to fail. Right. And once you fail once or twice, unfortunately, I think you get labeled, you kind well, of that guy's kind of fair yeah. to middling. Uh, he's not going to get you a championship. Right. And by biding my time and waiting for the best situation, um, I think that worked out well for me yeah, in my absolutely. career. 
you know, am I a good race engineer? Yes, I, I know I'm a good race engineer. Am I the greatest race engineer on the planet? No, not at all. I mean, there's some guys out there in the paddock who I, I can assure you are better than me, but I have been fortunate to be associated with some very good drivers. Right. You know, I mean, like Alex Zanardi in his prime, like he'd make anybody look pretty spectacular. Right. Uh, Juan Montoya in his prime, you know, make you look spectacular. So if you can get associated with a, a, a driver who's really good and he believes in you, you believe in him, right. you work well together, you can grab the whole team and pull everybody forward and really do some awesome things. Right. So for that 22-year-old uh, who's currently in the shop right now listening to this, building his SAE car, you know, and this, this thing is playing in the background, what are the big mistakes you see from kids right out of college in terms of the way they approach things or entitlement or anything like that? Now, we ask the same thing with like Brad Kettler and Bill Riley, and they, they give a very consistent series of answers. Well, uh, first thing is, is understand what you don't know. Yeah. yeah. Be willing to ask questions. Right. Lots and lots and lots of questions. It, you'll, you'll only go into an entry-level position. It's grunt work. You yeah. have to wire electrical connectors. Yeah. You have to calibrate load cells. You have to draw top hats <laughs> for suspension. Really right. basic things. Right. Um, but the most important thing is that you'll be at the elbow of some people who have done it for a number of years right. and have some very wise lessons to teach you right. and pay attention to those. Uh, so basically, don't try to run before you walk. Right. Um, the other thing is, is the way CAD software is now, you can design an incredibly complicated piece that probably can be manufactured for a massive amount of money but is that really the best way to do it? Got it? So I always tell my guys when they're designing a part, try to think about it that you're actually going to be the guy that had to make it. Right. And you maybe would have had to make it on a hand mill back in the right. Formula SAE shop. Yeah. So take some sympathy on the poor guy who does have to make it mm -hmm. yeah. and don't make something stupid. Be, <laughs> you know, try, and, try and think a little realistically about it. Um, I also tell them, let's get it about 90% of the way there, not 100% of the way there because that last 10%, you can end up spending two, three, four weeks on something, optimizing the last little bit. If we have a team of four or five people, we don't have that four or five weeks to spare. Right. So if you can get something that's about 90% right, it's gonna be strong enough, it's gonna do the job, and we can get it done and made and move on to the next project, let's do that. Got it. Um, in terms of things like reports and uh, you know, research that we might be doing, say something like a wind tunnel test or a shaker test or a torsion test, uh, write down the procedures, document everything you're doing. Um, be very careful about labels on stuff, uh, calibrations, units. Um, I have told my guys, I said, look, treat this as if you're going to unfortunately get run over by a bus tomorrow. Yeah. And if you do get run over by a bus, I've got to have some other guy pick this up and continue on with it. So, you know, that's, if you're doing a, a, your job professionally, you should be able to make it so somebody else can take it over at some point later. And then I, I think, you know, like I said, there are some people who take on, say, a, a job that, you know, they try to race engineer too early right. and it doesn't go well. In terms and of then, jumping in to be a hero or taking a job with a team that they can't win at? Um, I think as long as everybody is realistic about a team that isn't ready to win or yeah. has limited resources, that's okay. But what I'm talking about is personally, okay. that you know you can do the job that's being asked of you. Right. Um, you got to be sure about that. You have to know that you're going to have the answers because sometimes it's, it's really hard. Um, and if you look like a deer in the headlights or you end up making a lot of choices that aren't the right choices, 
uh, that will catch up with yeah. you. Yeah. And eventually it could potentially run you out of the business or run you into a lower series and you'll never recover from that. Right. Um, so you need to be sure you're ready. And I would say you know you're ready when as the assistant race engineer, you're watching the race engineer do stuff and you spend a lot of time going, why is he doing that? Actually, no, I don't think I would have done that. I would have done this instead, yeah. and here's why I would have done this instead. Um, and you can have almost a peer-to-peer -peer level conversation with the race engineer. Right. And when you feel like you can do that, then you're probably and ready. It up. Um, I, I heard a story, I won't name the team, but they had a, a junior engineer who wanted to be a race engineer. So they were doing a Sebring test, and the team said, all right, we're going to see how this is going to go. And they intentionally had the race engineer not get there. Oh, and so the kid was there, and they're like, oh, the race engineer hasn't made it. Yeah. I guess you're going to have to be the race engineer today. Right. And, uh, you know, that's just tossed in at the yeah. deep end, right? That's Didn't like dad, dad throwing you in the no swimming pool there. No chance to prepare and yeah. everything. And, uh, you know, in that case, I, I heard it didn't go well. <laughs> and they said, okay, well, not ready yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's other cases where... Um, you know, Tom German, who works at Ray Halls now, he's won a couple Indy 500s. He won the one with Rossi a year ago. He worked at Penske for a long, long time. Uh, he was a Firestone tire engineer, and then he went to Patrick Racing as an assistant race engineer. And the guy who was supposed to be the race engineer, for whatever reason, just decided to, like, disappear in the middle of the night. And so they go in <laughs> the next day, and they're like, the dude is gone. Like, <laughs> what, what do we do now? So they looked at Tom, and they said, well, I, this is you. I guess you're the race engineer today. <laughs> and he did well. And he's been a race engineer ever since. Right. So uh, odd circumstances can come, come up at any given time. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, guys who are married, their wife might be having a baby. Right. Uh, they got to yeah. go. Yeah. You know, and we need the, like, like a football team, it's next man up. Right. So, you know, always try to be as prepared as possible. So the career advice I just heard is when, if you have options on the table, go for the one where his wife is pregnant. Or, or kidnap the guy in front of you yep. for your career path. Yep. Take his job the next day. That's right. Like yeah. I, th that, that guy, <laughs> that guy who it? wandered out in the middle, and we don't know where he is. All right. Like, was something could have happened. I'm not blaming Tom. Okay. Who knows? But Fair but enough. But, but he happen. did get the job. He did get yeah, the yeah, job. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, once you get the job, you got to run with you it. He's it. won a bunch of championships, Indy 500s, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So I, I guess he knows what he's doing. So in all this, we never discussed, like, you know, you started out as, as sort of the data guy and doing junior engineer stuff. What was the, where did the phone call come from to make a step up? You know, I had talked to the, the bosses at Newman Haas and had said, um, you know, I'm getting offers to be a race engineer. I, I don't particularly want to leave, but I need to know at some point I'm going to be moving yeah, up. Yeah, you're here. on the course, sure. And, you know, they said, you know, yes, that, that's going to happen. We can commit to that, but we can't put a timetable on it. Right. Uh, and around when is this going on? This is early 2000s. Oh, okay. So you've been there almost uh, seven or eight years. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and... Todd Boland, uh, who I've, I've mentioned, um, was Christian Fittipaldi's race engineer. Yeah. And it was time for his contract to be renewed. And he was being pursued by other teams. And they said, Todd, we need to renew your contract. And Todd said, I can't do that right now. Which is code for because I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that somewhere else ended up being the Ray Hall team, which did work out just fine because he won the Indy 500 with them. Um, but usually what happens at that point in any race team is when you've indicated that you're not planning to stay around, you're invited to not stay around immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Todd was invited to not stay around, but the racing season <laughs> wasn't over yet. Okay. And so they looked and said, well, Craig, here you go. 
So I was now Christian Fittipaldi's race engine. Nice. Um, which was a, a good situation for me because there were a lot of experienced people there, people I could ask questions of, you know, rely on. It was a little awkward, though, because I had been the guy doing, like, all the fuel and strategy on Damata's car. Oh, wow. Okay. So what we would do is um, I would do all the race engineering on Fittipaldi's car through practice and qualifying and everything. And then for the actual race, they'd still have me go over to Damata's car oh, and wow. do the fuel and strategy. Okay. So I'd be, like, racing. And so they would split the engineer and the strategy. I would be, like, racing against my own car right. Right. during the race. And <laughs> but, was it one know, of these, like, two halves of the pit lane kind of thing with you guys? Uh, no, like, we no. would at that point, you were you were side by side. Yeah. Right, but um, I mean, in terms of the way you guys looked at each other. Like, was it like No, no, so, okay. no, the team, team, you know. Uh, it was one team. The teams, I like to work on open book, one team. Everybody's okay. yeah, pulling, yeah, yeah. pulling forward, trying yes. to trying to win. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't that awkward. Um, and it actually worked out well because I think we won two of the races with Damata, if I remember correctly. Um, but, you know, so it was a good introduction. Uh, and then the next year, you know, you start out the whole winter off-season, you know, testing with Christian and everything. And now I'm, like, firmly ensconced on that car. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had quite a good year. Damata won the championship that year. We didn't win any races with Christian, which is unfortunate. We were close a couple times and things didn't work out. Uh, probably the most vivid thing is, is I am responsible for the rule that if you <laughs> cause a, uh, oh, a red flag yeah. in qualifying, yep. you lose your best lap. Yep. So because of the way they were setting it up, I made the suggestion that winter that this should be the rule. If you cause the red flag, oh. you lose your left best lap. Okay. So, you know, I said this, this is how we should do it, and that would be an appropriate penalty and all that kind of stuff. And so the sanctioning body, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll make that a rule. Well, sure enough, first race of the year, <laughs> who causes Thank the you. first red flag? It's us. Yep. And we had the time good enough to take the pole. Right. Yep. So not only do I get bitten by my own rule, yep. I even lose my first ever career pole <laughs> due to my own rule. <laughs> so did, did like, you scream your own last name? Like, absolutely. <laughs> like, seriously bad. Um, <laughs> but we had a very good year. Uh, you know, like I said, D'Amato won the championship. I felt like I contributed to, you know, helping to make the cars quicker overall. I think Christian finished maybe third or fourth in the yeah. points. Uh, we, we did we did well. Um, you know, so that that was a, a good start to everything. Yeah. Um, and then the next year we got Bourdais, won three races that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he won Rookie of the Year, and then the year after we won the first of the four straight championships. Um, the, the championships uh, were a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, what was tough at that point, as much as dominant as we were, that anything other than winning the race felt like a failure. Absolutely. Anything other than total domination felt like you messed the weekend up. Right. Um, and then year in, year out, the pressure of we have to win the championship, and then we have to do it again, and then we have to do it again. It really weighed on me. Yeah. So I, I will have to admit, when Sebastian made the decision to go to Formula One, there was some element that felt relief. Yeah, I get Because it. I was like, Okay, <sighs> right. now the pressure's off a little. I can yeah. breathe again. Yeah. Um, because it really, it got, it got harder and harder. You just felt like you had to work harder and harder and harder each year yeah. because you can't let your team down. You can't let your driver down. You can't let the, the, the sport down. Like yeah. You have to keep pushing on it. So um, it was tough, and it wasn't all that fun, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you only remember the things that went wrong, and you don't necessarily remember the things that went well as much. That's great. So what would, like, let's say, because when you start as a mechanic, especially smaller team, new new guy, the engineer is, like, often highly regarded as kind of the boss. You know what I mean? You're on that same kind of uh, 
authoritative figure. Management level. Exactly. Yep. What would you say, like, the gopher on your team thinks when he sees you walking through the shop? Is he like, don't, don't look him in the eye? Yeah. Make sure his coffee's just the right temperature. Well, uh, fortunately, our or, team is so small, right. like you can't get anything like there that. No and like, I, like yeah, you know, yeah. like I said, it's yeah. you know, I, I go to work in jeans and a you know golf shirt. Yeah. Like I'm not looking fancy at right. all. So there's nothing like that. We don't have the super high level management. You know, certainly a bigger place like a Penske or right. an Assi or an Andretti, right. it's going to have that kind of thing. But I think everybody can talk to everybody. And honestly. If there's a, a mechanic on the team who doesn't feel like he can't, he can come to talk to me. Then we have a problem, right? Because yeah. that guy is just as bright as I am, and he might have just as good an idea as I have. You know, he's the one putting the brake lines in the front of the car, or bolting the springs on, yeah. or whatever. And if he sees something that's wrong or could be done better, we want to incorporate that. You need him so to come talk. So I him. want exactly. those guys to come and feel like they have just as much input as anybody right. else. You know, right. at Coin, we had a meeting on Monday, you know, which was the first day back from you know the postseason break where we went over with everybody on the team. Okay, you know, here's the list of projects we're going to be doing here in the winter. Got everybody's opinion. Is there anything else you want to bring up? You got everything? Like, we're all trying to pull in equal amounts. Right. So, you know, you don't want, like, you don't want prima donnas yeah. on the team. Now there comes a time where somebody does need to be in charge. Someone needs to make a decision. Somebody needs to make the hard choice. Or if we're, like, talking ourselves in circles, somebody needs to go, all right, here's what we're going to do. I recognize that that's me or Dale Coyne above me, right. something like that. And if you're going to question me after I make that, well, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Now, is my decision correct? Maybe not. But we had to make a choice at yeah. this particular fork in the road and head forward with it. Um, you know, it's pretty common on race teams where the mechanics are, like, bugged by the engineers because the engineers can't set up the car and they're <laughs> stupid and Take we, don't go, we don't go fast <laughs> enough and all that kind of stuff. And the engineers are frustrated with the mechanics because why couldn't we change that spring quicker? Or why right. couldn't we do right. that? Or why did the car break down? But I think if you step back, everybody is doing the best they can. Yep. They all have the same goal, which is to win the race or run as well as possible. And if you, you kind of recognize that, then things should be okay. Um, you know, sometimes there are people who have a bad attitude and they're just sort of permanently like that. And you need to maybe, you know, try and figure out, right. okay, how do we deal with that? Um, but, you know, for me, I, I, I think at COIN we have quite a, quite a good little group. I mean, little when group. you say small team, like I mean really small team. How many people work team. at COIN full-time? It's full-time. Oh. It's like we went to Derek Walker's shop two years ago. Yeah. And this is and like that after. Was, that was when he was running the Falcon Point. Uh, I was just, just wrapping up. Just yeah. wrapping yeah. up. And, so. and that was a big building, and there was a lot of empty rooms. And he gave us a tour, and he's like, oh, that was the engineering room. And that yeah, was yeah. this and this I mean, and this. And it was like, the, whoa. The, the organization was clearly coming to a halt, but the facility, which was considered a small team, yeah. was way better than most sports car teams. Yeah. Right. I so. mean, uh, in terms of an indie car, number one, our building is quite small. Um, we are at a real premium for space. We are okay. jammed in there. Um, don't really have, like, for example, we can't park the trucks inside the building. Interesting. Which gets in really hard in the winter yeah. that the yeah. poor guys have to go out into the trucks all yeah. the time. Um, so it is really tight in there, and yeah. we're always trying to figure out, okay, how can we move this or that? Yeah, yeah. But the fact is, like, the building needs to be bigger, and there's just no way to make that happen. Yeah. Right. Um, in terms of full-time employees, we have five full-time engineers which is really a little less than we need, but we're getting by. Um, <laughs> a little different from 
GTD. But, but it's, it's a different sport. No, I understand. I'm not sure. Yeah, I get it. Um, I get yeah, it. Yeah, we have, yeah. I mean, you got to look, a lot of look at who too. we're racing against. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I got you. So five full-time engineers. Um, and I think we have a chief mechanic and two guys on each car. Full-time damper guy, three full-time truck drivers, one full-time gearbox guy, one full-time sub-assembly guy. That's, and that okay, that's is, actually fairly small. Yeah, that is yeah. really small compared to a lot of. Well, we were we won't teams. we won't name the team, but we were we got a tour last year where like one team had a whole like wing and department with like three or four full time guys that were just working on friction, like <laughs> just loosening up the friction all they could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. it was like oh wow, and like that's a thousandth of a second they're trying yeah, to earn yeah. with four I guys. I mean, to, you know? to give you an example. Um, you know, our sub-assembly guy, his name is Larry. Uh, really good guy, long-time motor racing. Um, so he rebuilds the wheel bearings in the uprights, all the brakes, brake discs and brake calipers, master cylinders, steering racks, uh, tripod joints on the axles, and the pit stop wheel guns. Jeez. He rebuilds all of that stuff himself. <laughs> So right. he's really doing the work of two or three guys yeah. at a typical IndyCar team. Yeah. And in addition, Larry travels. He goes to the races. He's a yeah. mechanic on one of the cars during the races. Whereas, um, you know, like a Ganassi or a Penske, they'll have sub-assembly guys back at the shop. Yeah. And so they yeah. will leave last week's stuff there. It gets rebuilt. It's ready for them ready when they get the back deal. to the shop. Yeah, yeah. For sure. That only works if you have spare pieces yeah. that you can leave back. Yeah. If you're just using the same pieces over and over again. You know, to defend Dale in here, Dale knows what we want to grow into. Right. It's just these it's just things expensive. take money. Yeah. yeah. It, well, you know. When um, I hear five engineers, I hear five payrolls. You know. Yeah. Of, yeah. Of, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. to Dale's credit, you know, there are teams out there that they lay a lot of people off over the off season. Yeah. And then Particularly retire. now that the yeah. IndyCar off season is pretty long. Yeah. Um, Dale does not lay anybody off. He keeps us all employed over the winter. To his credit, because that's the right thing to do for your people. So I'm appreciative of that because, you know, we have more people to do projects over the winter, and I'm yeah. sure all those people are appreciative that they don't lose their job and they don't yeah. have to go find a different job. Yeah. You know, so Dale does it right, but it's small. Yeah. You know, it, it is far and away the smallest team it, in the paddock. It does put a bit of a – it shows how important the engineering side of this is that you have five full-time engineers, but then, like, as a total of employees, it sounds like maybe 12 to 15 people. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. That's, yeah, yeah. 33% you know I mean? so you look at the percentage, it's like – that, that shows and, you. Yeah. And, and in some, you know, the junior engineers, they will do some of the wiring on the cars. Yeah, yeah, right. sure. You know, there's a lot of calibrations for sensors and things like that. But a lot of what we do is looking at data, yeah. you know, setups. There is yeah. some simulation stuff that has to be done. Uh, dampers, shock absorbers, are far and away the most important part of an Indy car. Well, it's the one um, sort of like open area. And, it, and yeah. it's, it's actually too open. Yeah. Like, huh. you can spend $10 million on your dampers if you want to. Yeah, right. Um, and it is the differentiator between a Penske uh, and a Ganassi well, and, and, say, an Us. Like arguably, if, when we get to a street course and Penske's one through four, yeah, <laughs> where I mean, yeah. dampers are you really going to show up. You don't most, actually yeah. need to be an expert. If you just go out and you watch the Penske hop over a bumpy area or right. hop over a curb and look at how it takes those curbs and how it recovers and the amount of grip it has, and then you watch somebody else. Yeah. It's obvious that they are way ahead, but you got to keep in mind, I mean, they do have engineers back at the shop who are yeah. working on the shock absorbers. They build their own shock absorbers. You know, there's Penske shocks. Like if you're yeah. an amateur yeah. level racer, uh -huh. you can buy Penske shots. Those aren't Penske shocks. 
That's a different company. Yeah. They license the name from yeah. Roger Penske to call them Penske Shocks, but that's got nothing to do with Roger's IndyCar team. Roger's IndyCar team, they build their own shock absorbers. Yeah. From what I can see in photographs, it's a magnesium-bodied, exotic piece of art. Yeah. I don't know what happens inside it, but it's pretty impressive. The Penske team owns their own shaker rig. Right. The Penske team owns their own wind tunnel. They own their own wind tunnel model. Yeah. These aren't sour grapes, but that's what you're up against. That's yeah. what you're up against. Yeah. That's what you're trying to beat. You know, and I, we were happened to be pitted next to I think it was Will Powers' crew at the last race. You know, and you're friendly with them and you're chatting with them. And I say, you know, hey, congratulations on you guys all being in the running for the championship. You know, probably a stressful weekend. You know, keep all the guys playing well together. But, you know, that's just great that, you know, all four of your guys are up there. And he's like, we ought to be up there. Like the amount of like <laughs> stuff we've in. got. Yeah. Like yeah. if yeah. we aren't up there, we've done Sounds something up. really wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they're being realistic about the situation as well. Um, you know, it's it's an uphill climb. But, you know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. If it was easy, it wouldn't be fulfilling when you achieve success. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to Craig Hampson and uh, hopefully our young aspiring engineers got a little bit of something out of out of that special section. And uh, let's get the heck out of here. Next up is Tiger Dog, uh, a new submission to us that uh, you can find on Spotify. And uh, this is a song called Seriously. Seriously.
Oh, I can't take it.